The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to make sure that we are uh, prepared. We've already had a few moments of silent prayer with communion service, so we'll just open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you for what we are learning in the epistle of 1 John and the importance of fellowship. Fellowship is not simply a matter of personal relationship or a matter of even personal sin, but, but doctrine enters into the question, and wrong doctrine also breaks fellowship. Father, we thank you that, that our fellowship is, is with you and that that is uh, when we are in fellowship, your Holy Spirit is producing in us spiritual growth and spiritual life and that it is by the taking in of your word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we advance and mature so that we can become uh, mature believers glorifying you in our everyday life. We pray this now that as we study this we would be challenged with the things that we learn in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study of First uh, John, so open your Bibles with me to First John chapter one. First John chapter one, and we are still in the opening paragraph. It is here that John states his uh, first purpose for this epistle, and we have taken some time. And our analysis of this, primarily because the uh, organization of this, especially in the original language, and therefore the way it has been translated, is a little complex and difficult to grasp what is going on in these opening verses. Now, I always do my teaching from the original languages and do my studying in the original languages, and sometimes we have to spend a lot of time working our way through what is said in the original in order to get a good translation. Before you can start interpreting, that is, trying to understand just what the passage means, you have to sometimes understand what the passage says, because if the translation is wrong, then the interpretation is going to be wrong, and the application, therefore, will be uh, wrong, or at least not an application from that passage. So we have to look at this, and we have spent some time taking this apart. And we see that in the first verse, 
there are, are in the first section, there are a, a couple of things to notice. First of all, the, the first verse begins with four relative clauses. We have the text up on the overhead. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled. Those are four relative clauses. Now, in the Greek, these are classified as neuter accusatives. Now, neuter is the gender. That means that the relative pronoun that begins each clause is a neuter, and it must agree in gender with its antecedent. That's technical vocabulary, meaning whatever the what refers to has to agree in gender. Now, I can't be talking about a, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because then it would have to be a masculine uh, relative. It's a neuter. It can't be referring to the logos down at the end concerning the word of life, the logos of life, because that's a masculine noun. So it's not talking about the, uh, the, the uh, message of life there, as we'll see why I translate it that way in a minute. And uh, verse 3 comes along and repeats two of the relatives. What we have seen, what we've heard, we proclaim to you also. Now, what we saw last time, and what we've emphasized here is to understand this, we have to realize there's sort of, there's two diversions in the author's thought. He starts off the way he does for emphasis. And the emphasis is on the, what we have seen, the, the empirical evidence presented to the apostles. It's clearly, a, it's a first person plural pronoun. The we is an editorial we. I'll show why I say that in a minute. It's primarily, you, you can understand it is I, what I saw, what I heard. John's talking about himself, but he is including the other apostles, at least in a secondary sense. When we get a little further down, we're going to see that that can only be secondary because he uses a first-person plural throughout the first chapter, and we have to be somewhat consistent in our understanding of that first-person plural. It can't be referring to different groups every time, every other verse. So we have to be consistent, and the only thing that is consistent is to see that we is primarily I, but it does in some secondary sense include the other apostles because they were also involved in the empirical witness of who Jesus Christ is and the evidence of his physical life on the earth. So the emphasis, what John wants to focus on because of the problems with the false teaching, the Gnosticism, the teaching, or the proto-Gnosticism really in the teaching of Serenthus is the denial of the fact that Jesus really appeared in physical human form because of the idealism that was, that was present in Greek culture at that time that was part of what came to be known as Gnosticism. There was this uh, reduction of the significance of matter and an emphasis on the superiority of, uh, of the idea. This is why it's sometimes called idealism. Now, we can get into some real heavy philosophy here, and I'm going to try to avoid that because I don't want to scramble too many brain cells this morning. But we have to come back to understand a little bit about the context because it's interesting how these same ideas surface over and over again in the church age and they get repackaged and at times they get repackaged in 
orthodox vocabulary and end up being presented in uh, sort of a, uh, a less dangerous and less overt form as what the Bible teaches. And we'll see some evidences of that today. Gnosticism is not simply something that the early church dealt with. There are clearly Gnostic elements to Protestant liberal theology, which has its roots in the 19th century. There are even parallel, there, there's clearly Gnostic roots to the, what was called New Thought metaphysics, which came out uh, also in the same context in the early 19th century, came out of New England, is, was a byproduct of the transcendentalist movement. Uh, the New Thought metaphysics gave birth to Christian science gave birth to uh, uh, some, the health and wealth gospel that was brought into Christianity. It gave birth to, uh, uh, and, and has been resurrected again, it gave birth to the, the Theosophical Society, and that has been repackaged again for us in the late 20th century under the concept of the New Age movement. Many New Age ideas have been uh, cloaked and and deceptively repackaged in Orthodox Christian vocabulary and have infiltrated the church. Same thing, I think, happened in the middle 19th century with uh, other aspects because what happens in this whole context is we're talking about making a distinction between the realm of thought and the realm of physical reality. Now, in Platonism, the ultimate reality of significance was the idea. And everything in ultimate reality is just a reflection of what Plato called the form or the idea. So real significance is up here, and matter is less significant. In some of its more extreme forms, matter became associated with evil. Anything that was material was evil, and the good is in the realm of the idea or the spiritual or the non-material. Therefore, in early Gnosticism and early and pre-Gnostic ideas, anything that, that for God to be good and to be associated with the physical body would destroy his goodness, so that would be impossible. Therefore, there couldn't have been a real incarnation. There couldn't have been a... Uh, God could not become true humanity. Of course, that is not only an assault on the cross... It is an assault on, on the spiritual life. So, John starts off emphasizing the fact that they were witnesses to the Incarnation. And I emphasized the doctrine of the Incarnation the last time, and that there is empirical data and empirical evidence for that. That's why he starts off with these relative clauses, to emphasize their, um, their witness. So, we look at these verses, and in order to boil it down, to get the, just the core idea here, we need to take out the second verse. The second verse is a parenthesis. In New American Standard, it's offset by these M dashes, and the same thing is and set off in King James with, a, uh, with parentheses. And it, it's, it's a diversion in his thought to explain this last phrase that you see right here, the word of life. The verse 2 is an explanation of this phrase that's translated the word of life. I think it should be translated message of life. But it is, it's an explanation of what that means. So if we take verse 2 out 
and we just run from 1-1 to 1-3, it looks something like what you now have on the overhead, and that helps us pick up the thought. Now, this first line here, down in verse 3, what we have seen and heard is merely a repetition to pick up the idea of verse 1, so we can really drop that out in our reading of the text. So let's just put that together and see how that flows. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled, concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship. That gives us the purpose clause for why they are proclaiming this. So we see here that the main clause, the main idea here is this phrase, we proclaim to you. The word proclaim it is the main verb of this whole sentence. Everything from one one down through one four is one sentence in the original Greek. So we have to isolate the main verb in order to get the main thought, and it is the verb op angelo, which means to announce, to inform, to tell, to report, to declare, or to communicate. So we are communicating something to you. We are announcing something to you. We are informing you about something for a particular purpose. Now, we'll come back to the purpose later on, but we have to understand the concept of what it is they are announcing. Now, in grammar, the object of a verb is in the accusative case, and that's clear in the Greek because you have the morphology that indicates what's in the accusative case. The accusative case tells you the direct object. The relative clauses in verse 1 are in the accusative case. That tells you that verse 1 is the direct object of the verb. Now, in English, whenever you set out a sentence, we usually organize a sentence with the subject first, then the verb, then the direct object. You know, Bob gave his children, Bob would be the subject, Gave is the verb. His children is the indirect object. Presence for Christmas. Presence is the direct object. That's usually the sentence, simple sentence structure in English. But here we have a completely, uh, as far as English is concerned, completely convoluted sentence structure. We don't even get to the main verb and the main idea until we get to verse 3. So, for sake of our, your understanding and my understanding of what John's thought flow is here, I've re re-translated this and reorganized it so it makes better sense in English. We proclaim to you. That's how it should start off, throwing the subject, main subject, main verb right up there, up front, where we can all see it. We proclaim to you concerning the message of life. That's going to define, it's a peri clause in the Greek, which helps us to understand the object of the proclamation a little bit, or what it relates to, the message of life. Now, we'll come back to, under, to translating this, why translate that way a little later on. We proclaim to you concerning the message of life, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld. So we're proclaiming to you what was from the beginning, and what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we beheld in our hands handled, and that relates to the message of life. That relates to the message. We proclaim what? You proclaim a message. Now, and the life was revealed, and we have seen and give our testimony and announce to you the eternal life which was with the Father. There we see that on the one hand there's a life that's revealed, and that life is identified with a person. 
And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I keep emphasizing here, the message here is the life, not the person. (coughs) The thrust here is on the quality of life, the kind of life he led on the earth. We have to go back to our study in John. I can't tell you how important I think it is that we study the Gospel of John before we study this epistle. Because the things that we learned in the Gospel, especially in the Upper Room Discourse, are foundational to understanding this. The primary purpose in the Gospel of John wasn't just the, the, the sign section in John 20, 31. These were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That just relates to the sign section. But the overall purpose of John was in the statement Jesus made when he said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but I came to give life and to give life abundantly. Now, the science section relates to how you get life. You get life by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and at that point, you have eternal salvation. That's the gaining of life. But abundant life is a second category. That's on top of the acquisition of life. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you move from spiritual death to spiritual life. But how do you live? How do you have that quality of life? How do you have that abundant life? That was the subject of the upper room discourse of John 15 to John 18. And that's the point that John is explaining and developing here in 1 John. This is what eternal life is. So often in the, in the Bible, when we read eternal life, we think of life without end. Life that goes on forever, that when I die, I will live forever with God in heaven. But the concept of eternal in the scripture is not simply a, a quantity concept. See, time is quantity. And when you, if you live forever, you have unlimited quantity of time. But it's a quality concept. It's not just the length of time. See, unbelievers are going to live forever. They're going to live forever in the lake of fire. Believers are going to live forever, but we have a quality of life. And we can have a quality of life in the church age, in our existence in time, that goes far beyond anything we can even imagine. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching the disciples about in the upper room discourse. This is based on abiding with him and the fruit production of John chapter 15. So when John says here that we're talking about the message of life, we're not talking about the gospel message of how to gain life. We're talking about the spiritual life message of having the abundant life. And that's the key to understanding the whole epistle of John, is that we're not talking about gaining life. We're talking about experiencing the fullness of that abundant life that Jesus has given us, and that he exemplified it in the first advent. He set the pattern and the precedence for the spiritual life of the church age during the time of the Incarnation. So to understand the thought flow here, he says, And the life was revealed, we have seen, and give our testimony, and announce to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we announce to you also, that you might have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father. If you don't have an understanding of the spiritual life that Christ established during the first advent, you won't be able to have fellowship with the apostles, which is based on true doctrine, and therefore, if you're not in fellowship with the apostles, you're not in fellowship with God, because the apostles are in fellowship with God because they have true doctrine. So if you're not in fellowship with those who are in fellowship with God, you can't be in fellowship with God. Is that clear? Okay. Now, 
that we have retranslated and understood the translation. We have to go back and see why I translated it that way. And we have to realize that in this section there are three basic exegetical conundrums or problems that we have to deal with. The first is, to what do those neuter clauses refer? The neuter clauses can't refer to lagos, as I've said already, because that's a masculine noun. Um, In fact, there is no neuter noun in the section that is um, to which it can refer. And that is not unusual in Greek. Often, when you have a collective concept, then you pick up a neuter noun in order to refer to the collective concept. Uh, some have suggested that the collective concept, I think it's close to being right, is the witness of the apostles. Now, the word witness in Greek is a neuter. The, the noun is a neuter from, from uh, Marture, uh, which means a, a witness. And it could possibly be that that is ellipsized out in the understood reference. But it can also simply be that because he's talking about the message and he's talking about the, the, um, what we, what, everything that's involved with the message, that he just simply includes all of these things, masculine nouns, feminine nouns, includes them all with one reference by a neuter noun, uh, what, which refers to the message, the testimony, everything that they, have, they saw and experienced about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's what the neuter clause refers to. It refers to the total concept of the witness. Notice that in verse 2 it says, what we've seen and bear witness. There's the verb. So it's referring to the overall uh, apostolic witness about the uh, incarnation and everything that Jesus did, said, and taught. Now, that's what the relative clauses refer to. The second thing that we have to solve before we can accurately translate it is we have to decide what beginning refers to in that first clause. The first clause reads, what was from the beginning. Now, the phrase in the Greek is the preposition apo, apo plus the noun arche. A-P-O and R-K. Now, R-K, A-R-C-H-E. Now, R-K is the word for beginning. It's the same word that is used in John 1.1, which begins in the beginning. But there we have a different preposition. Apo means from and in First, or in John, we have in, E-N, which means in or at the time of. Would be a good translation. In or at the time of. Now, is John 1, 1 referring to the same beginning? I mean, First John 1, 1 referring to the same beginning as John 1. I don't think so. If we look at how the word R-K is used, in John's writings, that is, in both the Gospel, the Epistles, and Revelation, it's used 18 times in Johannine literature. In John 1.1, it refers to the absolute beginning of the space-time universe. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was, there is a, same as it is here in uh, the first clause of 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, 
is an imperfect active indicative of the verb a me to be, and it refers to continued existence in John 1 1, and where it says, In the beginning, the Logos continually already was existing. And that refers to the fact that when God first created the space time universe, the Logos was already in continuous existence. It's a reference to the eternality of Jesus Christ. So John 1 1 refers to an absolute beginning of the space-time universe. In John 2.11, the phrase is used again, and there it refers to the beginning of Jesus' miracles, the, at, about the wedding, I mean, the uh, changing of the wine, uh, water into wine at the wedding of, in Cana. John 2.11 says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. So that's talking about the beginning of his miracles. In John 16.24, it refers to the beginning of his ministry to the disciples, his teaching ministry to the disciples. John 16, 4, he said, But these things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. So there it refers to the beginning of his public ministry with the disciples. So beginning is not a technical term that always refers to the same beginning. 1 John 2, 7 reads, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. Now that's not talking about the absolute beginning of the universe. It's not talking about even the beginning of Christ's incarnation. There it's referring to the beginning of his teaching them about the spiritual life. I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. And that was given to them, remember, we studied that in the Upper Room Discourse. First John 2, 13 through and 14, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. That's referring to the eternality of God the Father. First John 2, 14, I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Same, same reference there. And so we see that beginning can refer to eternity past. 1 John 2.24, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. So that's referring to the beginning of Jesus teaching the disciples. So we can go on and look at several other passages, but I think you get the point that beginning is not a technical term for the absolute beginning, and it can refer to different beginnings. In 1 John 1.1, it is clear that they're talking about a message. That message, therefore, had to have been communicated at a certain starting point, and that was during his teaching ministry to the apostles. So they are talking there about their witness from the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ when the disciples were associated with them, specifically John, because that first-person plural includes him primarily and is a reference to him primarily. So that takes us to the episode in John chapter 2 when John the apostle was a disciple of John the Baptist, and Jesus came down to be baptized, and John the Baptist said, Behold, one is coming after me whose uh, uh, sandals I'm not worthy to tie. And when Jesus came and he announced him, then he told John and uh, Andrew or, to go follow him, and, not to fo- and they left John the Baptist and starting, started following the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So that's the beginning that this is referring to, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and teaching of the disciples. So they're talking about that message. Now that, of course, brings into question why I keep emphasizing that that last phrase, translated word, capital W, in John, in the first verse, is not a capital W, but should be translated message, not word. One of the problems that we have when we look at this is that is that John uh, wants us to think in terms of what he has already said in the gospel. It says here, um, in, in the gospels, it, it began with an introduction of Jesus Christ as the Lagos. In the beginning was the word. Lagos, there is a technical word uh, to describe Jesus Christ in his eternal relationship with the Father. And as soon as you see the word Lagos over in 1 John 1.1, and as soon as you see the word beginning, if you're familiar with the gospel, the first thing that should come to your mind is that, oh, I'm thinking about the gospel. Well, in the gospel of John, you're talking, the emphasis is on the person of Jesus Christ, the man. John doesn't want us to lose sight of the fact that, in this case, the man is the message. And the message is the man. You can't separate the message from the man in the New Testament in the relationship with Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the man, and the man is the message, and the message is the man. Now, what we have seen in our introduction here is that the empirical evidence that they are emphasizing, what we heard, what we saw, what we beheld, what our hands handled, is the main message of this, of this whole introduction. The thrust of it is related to the Incarnation. Now, we took these kind of backwards because the, we missed last Sunday, but the Sunday before was, New, uh, was Christmas Eve. Since it was Christmas Eve, I took it out of order and gave a Christmas message on the Incarnation. And that was the point of this, is that the Incarnation is a physical Incarnation. But the emphasis is, is on the empirical evidence that substantiates the physical Incarnation. Now, in this case, John is emphasizing the fact that the message is the man, and the man is the message, and you can't have this man, Jesus Christ, without this message, and you can't have the message without the man. Now, what do I mean by that? First of all, I mean that Jesus Christ had to be both true humanity and undiminished deity to accomplish his work on the cross. He could not be simply a man or simply a good man. On the other hand, he couldn't, be, he couldn't be God and not true humanity. He had to be both true humanity and undiminished deity to accomplish his work on the cross. If he were not true humanity, then he could not have died as a substitute for the sins of humanity. Like had to die for like. He had to be true humanity to die for the sins of humanity. But if he was not undiminished deity, his death would have had, would not have had unlimited value, and he would not have had the plus R, the perfect righteousness of God. You see, there are two aspects to salvation. The first is the payment for sin. 
But you see, the sin of every single person has been paid for. Every unbeliever has had their sin paid for. But they're not saved. See, there's two aspects. You have to not only have your sins paid for, but you have to have perfect righteousness. Because God's perfect righteousness cannot have fellowship with anyone less than perfect righteousness. So there have to be two things in order to be saved. You have to have your sins paid for, and you have to possess perfect righteousness. Now, this is how we come to possess perfect righteousness. God the Father is perfect righteousness plus R and perfect justice. And yet man, because of sin, is minus R. I don't know where that other line came from, but uh, didn't look that way yesterday. Goblins in the computer. Uh, man is minus R. Scripture says that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. doesn't say all of our unrighteous deeds are like a filthy garment, but all of our unrighteous... I mean, all of our... It doesn't say all of our unrighteous deeds are like a filthy garment, but all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So no matter how good we are, we are still minus R. Yet Jesus Christ, because He was perfect in all things... He was tested in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ remained impeccable at the, on the cross, plus R. On the cross, all of our sins were imputed to Him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. On the cross, all of our sins were imputed to Jesus Christ. And at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, the perfect righteousness of Christ is then imputed to us and credited to our account. Therefore, when God looks at us, He is not looking at the fact that we are minus R or that we are sinners. That is covered by the fact that we have received the perfect righteousness of Christ. In the episode in Zechariah was Zerubbabel, the picture is of putting on a white garment. We are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ so that we receive blessing not because of what we do or what we don't do, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. At salvation, when God the Father looks at us and we possess perfect righteousness, we are declared righteous. That's what justification means. We are declared righteousness. All of that happens simultaneously. We express our faith in Christ alone and we are instantly imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ and simultaneously declared righteous by God the Father. As a result of that, we receive blessing from God not because of who we are or what we do, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, two things have to happen at salvation. First, we have to have our sins paid for. Christ was able to pay for them because He was true humanity. But we have to be able to receive perfect righteousness. That did not come from His humanity. It came from His deity. We are given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, the second reason why Jesus Christ had to be incarnate, was that in the hypostatic union, He provided the pattern and the precedent for our new spiritual life in the church age. That spiritual life is based on the indwelling and the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there were less than a hundred people who ever experienced a direct ministry from God the Holy Spirit. It's described in various terms. They're clothed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon them. Various different 
uh, technical terms in the Hebrew are used, none of them relate to indwelling like you have indwelling in the New Testament or filling like you have filling in the New Testament. It was uh, The Holy Spirit came upon those Old Testament leaders for the purpose of providing them with a particular ability related to their function in the uh, theocratic kingdom of Israel. For example, Aholiab and Bezalel were the craftsmen who built all the furniture, all the, all the uh, artifacts, all the uh, material for the, uh, for the temple and for the tabernacle. And the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to do that, gave them that skill. You have different judges who were, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon, and he gave them military capability to defeat their enemies. But he doesn't come upon them for their spiritual life. It's related to their function and their role in the theocratic kingdom. He came upon the kings like Saul and David. He left Saul because of Saul's carnality, remained with David despite his carnality as, as an example of God's grace. But it wasn't related to their spiritual life. It was related to their function as the king over God's chosen nation. So the Holy Spirit is different in the church age, and the precedent for that is in the life of Christ. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he was filled by the Holy Spirit, and he lived his life and solved problems and faced testings yet without sin, not because he was relying on his deity, but because he was relying upon the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. That sets the precedent for the church age. You didn't have anything like it in Israel. There wasn't anything like it under the Mosaic Law. And that's why in the church age, and we've seen this in our study on Wednesday night in dispensationalism, that's why there's an emphasis in dispensationalism that you don't go back to the law to find your basis for the Christian life. And almost every religious system, almost every denomination, goes to the Mosaic Law for their system of spirituality, and it's wrong. We're not under the law anymore. The law in Israel is, are not the precedent for the believer in the church age. Jesus Christ patterned and lived out the spiritual life for us, and this was based on eight of the problem-solving devices or stress busters that we have studied. And John is going to develop these under three categories. He's going to talk about the uh, paideon, the children, he is going to talk about the, uh, uh, yeah, there are certainly, uh, all of a sudden, there are certainly demons or gremlins in the computer because I've lost my Greek font all of a sudden. The Greek words disappeared. <sighs> Trying to teach doctrine, there's always angelic conflict. John is going to talk about the technon. The technon, which are spiritual children, is going to talk about the young men, which are spiritual adolescents. He's going to talk about the fathers, which are the spiritually mature. Those are the three categories. And there are different spiritual skills necessary to move through each stage of spiritual growth. And this chart outlines them, that the initial basic um, skills are confession, filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18 and Galatians uh, 5.16, faith rest drill, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, grace orientation, 2 Peter 3.18, we grow by means of grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and doctrinal orientation, see we grow by means of grace and knowledge. That is the basis there. So what we see is that this is demonstrated, the spiritual life is demonstrated in Christ through 
eight of the stress busters. Now, the two that are left out are, going to, are confession and occupation with Christ. Now, these are spiritual skills. What do I mean by a spiritual skill? A skill is a technique, a talent, an ability that is developed through training and practice. Let me say that again. A skill is a technique, a talent, or an ability that is developed through training and practice. Many of you have been involved in sports, or if you've been involved in uh, any kind of discipline related to uh, music, or even uh, learning how to do your job with working with a computer or anything like that, you know that you only develop proficiency in that discipline through practice. And you do it over and over and over again until you're absolutely sick of it. And in some discipline, for example, if you're in dance and ballet, if you're in voice and singing, music, sports, you just get absolutely fed up with the basic mechanical drills that you have to go through over and over and over again in order to become proficient. But the reason you do that is so that when it comes time to perform, you can perform without having to think. You get it. If you're in dance, you go through the same maneuvers over and over and over again. Same thing would apply in any physical sport so that it enters into muscle memory so that when the test comes, when performance comes, you don't stop and think. It's an automatic reflex action and you do it. So that in the spiritual life, you keep practicing the fact that I need to confess my sins. I need to confess my sins. It, it may be laborious at times. I have to stop and see if I've sinned. Oh, what was it? And you confess it and you go over it. But, but after a while, you begin to, to stop and you, you don't even think about it. You just, you know, I just sin and you confess it. And it becomes second nature to you. And then you start working on faith rest drill. You memorize two or three promises. Remember, if the faith rest drill starts with mixing faith with promises, if you don't know any promises, you don't have anything to mix your faith with, and you'll never get past spiritual childhood. You have to memorize promises and store them in your soul so that when the time comes, you can claim the promises. It just goes without saying that no promises in the soul. There's no application whatsoever to... to uh, produce any kind of spiritual growth. So you have to practice it. And you stop and you say, okay, what promise? I know there's a promise. So when you go back and you read your Bible, maybe you make notes. You get a little booklet on standing on the, on the promises and you look at the promises in the back or on the uh, 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 Faith Rest Grill book. There are promises in the back of that. And you look those up and you go over them and over them and then uh, after a while you get them ingrained in your soul and the next time you start feeling a little anxious you immediately say oh I remember the pastor always quotes that verse be anxious for nothing and then you start saying that to yourself and you may have to repeat it to yourself 15 or 20 times for the Holy Spirit to use it to stabilize your emotions so you quit worrying and being anxious and, and depending on your, the trend of your sin nature and you begin to stabilize and focus on doctrine that's a spiritual skill you practice it you train over and over again and that produces the uh, uh, proficiency at that level. And once you get that mastered, you move on. And uh, this is sort of the logical progression, but in actual growth, it's not quite this neat. You may be focusing on doctrinal orientation issues before you're focusing on some faith rest drill issues. But in the process, you, you keep drilling yourself and testing yourself as you grow. And then you get to a spiritual adolescence. And in spiritual adolescence, you have to master a personal sense of your eternal destiny. Just like in uh, growing up, you all have teenagers, or 
have been a teenager, one or the other, you know that teenagers usually don't think past this afternoon if they're thinking that far in advance. And as they grow older, one sign of maturity is that you understand postponed gratification. You're not going to uh, get it today. You'll wait till tomorrow or next week. And finally, when you get into your 30s, you understand some things about uh, preparation for your 40s or 50s, and you might even start thinking about putting money away for your retirement. But you begin to think longer range. You think further out in terms of time. And you start making decisions not based on what's going to happen this afternoon, but you start making decisions based on its impact 10, 20, 30 years from now. Well, spiritual life is the same way. As you grow past childhood, you begin to understand that at death, or the rapture, whichever comes first, we're going to be absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and then after the rapture, there'll be the judgment seat of Christ, where we will have an evaluation judgment based on our spiritual growth during the church age. So that's our eternal destiny, and that will determine our inheritance and rewards. So we start realizing that, oh, it's not just a matter of uh, using uh, problem-solving devices to solve my problem right now, but it's a matter of spiritual growth so that I can glorify God and I won't be standing naked at the judgment seat of Christ. So I better not do that, not because, well, I can get, I can get forgiveness for it later, but it's going to impact my spiritual life long-term, and I'm going to start making decisions now in light of eternity. So that's, uh, and most Christians kind of hit that. The reason I drew that out that way is it's sort of a ceiling for 90% of believers, and they never quite get through this. You know, trying to learn to think beyond tomorrow is too much for some people, and they never make it in their spiritual life. Spiritual adulthood, then, is where we begin to really develop in the realm of, of love. That's why love is a mature factor in the spiritual life. It's not something you master as an unbeliever because it takes a certain amount of doctrine to be able to understand who God is. You can't love who you don't know. So personal love for God is based on an understanding of doctrine. And then as we come to understand who God is and love Him, that provides motivation to love others. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. So only as we learn what it means that Christ loved us do we understand what it means to love other people? And that doesn't mean having certain feelings about them and being sentimental about them, but it means doing the right thing on their behalf. And then the third is occupation with Christ. And these three I link together as the love triplex because they're all related to understanding what love is. And then the culmination of everything is what the Bible calls joy or happiness. We see this in James 1, 2. He starts off with the top thing. They counted all joy when you encounter various trials, and then the rest of the book is designed to teach us how to do that so that we can reach that upper level of maturity. Now, the reason we have to learn this is to protect our soul. When we get all of these in place and we're living on the basis of these uh, stress busters, they protect our soul like a wall, uh, wall of fire, like a fortress. In fact, the Old Testament uses the imagery of a fortress. It uses the imagery of a strong tower. And we are, when we are in fellowship with the Lord, utilizing the stress busters, our soul is surrounded by an impregnable fortress that uh, keeps us strong and healthy. When we are in carnality, we're outside of that fortress, and we are um, at the mercies and of all of the uh, storms of adversity, and the result is going to be the fragmentation of the soul, and we give in to stress in the soul, which is tantamount to uh, sin nature control.
Jesus Christ modeled that life. He is the pattern and the precedent for that life during the first advent. And that's why understanding the incarnation and the true humanity of Jesus Christ is so important and foundational to understanding what John is going to teach us in this epistle. But John is tricky here. John's tr- the way he uses words, he has different levels of meaning. And so he uses the word logos here because he knows it's going to bring to our mind Jesus Christ, but he's not using it in the technical sense. And one of the ways we know this is that uh, logos is used seven times in John's epistles. None of the other six are used are our technical use of logos. So this would be the only exception. As a matter of fact, if you go through the Gospel of John... He uses the word logos uh, about 30 or 40 different times, and it's only in the first two verses and in the 14th verse of the first chapter that it has a technical, a, a technical meaning. So it's unusual for John to use it in a technical sense to begin with. Secondly, we would notice that if logos is used technically for the Lord Jesus Christ, then you would be able to, set, to substitute Jesus Christ for the word logos, and it would make sense. For example, in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just substitute Jesus Christ for Word. In the beginning was Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was with God, and Jesus Christ was God. You can go down to John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. It makes perfect sense. But if you come to 1 John 1.1 and substitute Jesus Christ for logos here, we would say what was from the beginning, blah, 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 concerning the Jesus, or concerning Jesus Christ of life. That doesn't make sense. You can't substitute Jesus Christ here because it's not used as a technical title. Now, the only exception to that was you could take the genitive of life as adjectival, and then it would be the living Jesus Christ. But the subject here isn't about the living Jesus Christ. The subject is about life, which is what is explained in verse 2. Verse 2 says, The life was manifested. We have seen the life. We proclaim to you the eternal life. What's the subject of verse 2? It's life. Life is the issue. So it shouldn't be translated the word of life, the log, as if it's referring to logos, but it should be translated in the normal meaning of logos, which is word or thought or communication, concerning the message of life. We're talking to you about the message of abundant life, which was exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ during the first advent. We saw him. We saw him in any and every situation. We saw him handle opposition. We saw him handle the Pharisees. We know that he didn't get angry. We know that he did not succumb to temptation. We saw him live out the problem-solving devices, the spiritual skills before our very eyes. And this is what we're teaching you about. All of those relatives need to be taken as a whole. Don't just isolate them as individuals, but look at them as, as a totality. That he is talk, He's talking about everything that we saw from the beginning of the ministry, everything we heard. And here we come to, well, I don't know what happened here, Ake Koaman, which is the perfect active, active indicative of the first person plural of Akuo, meaning to hear or to listen to. So it's talking about everything we heard, not just his teaching, but everything he said. 
We have what well, was from the beginning, what we heard, everything about his life, the conversations when we, when we heard him uh, refute the Pharisees, when we heard him teach doctrine, everything we heard. The, and this is in a perfect tense. Now, this is interesting because the first two verbs are perfect active indicatives and the second two verbs are aorist active indicatives. Now, normally, a perfect tense emphasizes the results of a past action. But there's a, a very rare use of the perfect tense, which is called the aorist or dramatic perfect. And the use of the uh, aorist or dramatic perfect is a rhetorical device to describe an event in a highly vivid way. So that the aoristic arist, or dramatic perfect is used as a simple past tense without concern for present consequences. See, what we heard is all in the past. It's not an emphasis on present results. He's talking about what was in the past. But he puts it in the perfect because he's dramatizing. He's coming out of the chute, as it were, with a punch. We heard this. It's very dramatic. We heard it and we saw it. You can't deny it. We saw it in the past. The second verb is um, is heroakamen, uh, which is the... Uh, perfect active indicative of horao, which means to see with comprehension, to understand, to perceive. This is what we heard and what we perceived, what we understood about Jesus Christ. We perceived, we saw this with our eyes, and we beheld it. Now, the perfect tense, again, is an aoristic or dramatic perfect. The active voice indicates that the subject performs the action. And in both of these verbs, it's John, along with the other disciples, heard and saw and perceived with their eyes what was going on and what Jesus was demonstrating before them. The indicative mood expresses the mood of reality. And then we come to the next two verbs, uh, the aorist middle indicative, first person plural of theaomai, which means to not only to just see but to perceive everything. So it's talking about understanding in the first, in horao, and perception of everything, witnessing and seeing every little thing, in the second instance, what we beheld, and our hands handled. Now, the aorist in both of the last two verbs is a consummative aorist, which places the stress on the cessation and the completion of the activity. This isn't still going on. We saw it at one time during those three years of the incarnation or of his public ministry. We saw it all, and these are our conclusions. Now, the atheosomatha is a aorist middle, but it's what's called a deponent middle, which means it's passive in form, but active in meaning. The subject, therefore, performs the action. So all of these verbs have the same emphasis that John, along with the other disciples, saw, heard, beheld, and their hands handled the word of life. Now, the last verb is um, the aorist active indicative first person plural of selafao, which means to physically feel, touch, or handle. And all of this means that they had full empirical uh, content with the Lord Jesus Christ and his physical incarnation. And so it wasn't an illusion. It wasn't something that, that was just a sort of an illusion of the mind that he had sort of a semi-body that just sort of appeared and, and wasn't real. But it was actual and we are eyewitnesses to it. Next time, we'll come back and look at the significance of their eyewitness testimony and the purpose of fellowship.
that comes from understanding, or the reality of fellowship that comes from understanding these important doctrines related to the hypostatic union and the incarnation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have your word to look at and that we can understand exactly what it says that even though it may be difficult at times and even though we have to dig a little, it is, it, we can clearly come to understand what you have to communicate to us. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who came to die as a substitute for our sins. We thank you for his uh, impeccability, for, the, for the, uh, his sinlessness that, he, that qualified him to go to the cross and for the fact that he lived his life on the basis of spiritual skills that we can emulate that you have bequeathed these to us along with the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit so that we can live a life of spiritual growth and of fellowship with you. Father, we thank you that we have salvation and we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. All you need to do is trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and does not involve any human work. Father, we pray that you would use the things that we had studied for our spiritual growth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.